Want a career in game development or filmmaking? Yes, please. Come to Terminus. Not the one from The Walking Dead. This is the Terminus Conference and Festival, a one-of-a-kind event for emerging creatives in film and gaming. It's held from June 22nd to 25th of this year in Atlanta, Georgia, and it's perfect for creators and fans looking to grow their careers while also having fun. Explore different networking opportunities, parties, and educational workshops for game developers led by the likes of Ubisoft, IDOS Montreal, and Shell Games. Best of all, our listeners can get 25% off all-access badges by using the code ACHIEVEMENT. That's one word, lowercase, at checkout. So visit TerminusEvent.com for more information and remember the code ACHIEVEMENT. Hello and welcome to Achievement Oriented, the Ringer's video game podcast. My name is Ben Lindbergh and I'm a writer for TheRinger.com and joined by a man with no internet aside from his phone. No internet! It's my colleague and co-host Jason Concepcion. Jason, you're between apartments, you got no connection. Who None. watches the Overwatch while you're away? It's just very, very tough right now. Um, there's Hearthstone <laughs> on my phone and... That's really, I've got, you know, I've got Steam on my laptop, uh-huh. so I've got Stardew Valley and stuff, but, you know, it's not it's not ideal right now, but these are the things that we have to do. Yeah, solo queue must be in disarray without you. <laughs> it must be just a bunch of people pumping their kill-death ratios, not paying any attention to team objectives. Awful. Yeah. So we're going to talk to uh, a couple of people on this podcast, three people actually. Later on in the show, we're going to talk to Sarah Needleman, who's a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. She covers the video game business. We're going to talk to her about how she got into that and the future of esports. We're going to talk to DJ, who is a glitcher and uh, a very accomplished explorer of Destiny. We're going to talk to him about how he got to places in the original Destiny that you're not supposed to be able to go and also get his thoughts on the Destiny 2 announcement. In just a second, we're going to talk to prolific player of video games, Justin Charity, who has... We've uh, created a monster. <laughs> we really have. <laughs> but uh, did you see friend of the podcast, Chris Sullentrop, had Sofia Stefanovic on his show this week, and she's a writer. She wrote an op-ed for the New York Times about how she didn't have a Nintendo Switch and she wanted one. She was coveting a Switch, but she felt like she couldn't get herself one, A, just because she literally couldn't get herself one. She couldn't find one, but also because she works from home and she was worried about how it would disrupt her routine. So it was sort of like a plea for someone to get her a Switch or it was like she was subtweeting her boyfriend yeah. via the New York yeah. Times kind of to to yeah. shame him into getting a switch for her which the, worked the highest quality subtweet yeah <laughs> and it worked he got her one and so i'm wondering whether we should write a new york times op-ed about yeah. our desire for vr because we really do need one <laughs> we're still we out here two. begging we do and before it was just kind of an idle thing i i wanted to try it it's vr it's cool but increasingly there are some games that i really have to play and so now farpoint looks farpoint looks very interesting yeah farpoint sci-fi fps just came out star trek comes out later this month these are games that i feel like i have to play these are not just games that i want to play and so i've really been eyeing the psvr amazon page all week and i just (sighs) i haven't been able to make myself do it it's just so expensive. Yeah, I can't do it yet. There's going to be new hardware that's better sometime soon, and there aren't that many games, and I just can't quite do it. But maybe if we write an op-ed, we will shame our own partners into <laughs> getting us VR. Why, yeah. 
Why won't our significant others get us virtual reality headsets? <laughs> they don't listen to this, good... so this isn't going to work. But yeah, uh, they don't listen. <laughs> someone, if you're out there, yeah, there's got to be some billionaire who listens to this podcast just to send us. I think VR. I think my I think my dog loves me enough, but just doesn't have the resources. <laughs> yeah, right. Doesn't have the means. All right, so let's bring on Justin. Yeah. So last week we talked to Justin about how he got back into video gaming after a long absence and how he's more into it than ever. And the latest example of that is that since that last podcast, he has completed Prey and I believe started it again. (laughs) I don't even know what to say about this. (laughs) I checked your archive on the site, Justin, to see if you are still working. And from all appearances, you are. I don't know how how you're doing that, but... You've somehow managed to fit beating long games on a weekly basis into your work-life balance. <laughs> Listen, in fairness, I mostly beat Prey on a weekend. That's usually how I do it. It's usually on a weekend. I waste an entire weekend. Yeah. So there are a couple of specific things I want to ask you about Prey, and we won't get too much into spoiler territory here, but want to give us your overall impression of the game? Sure. I mean, can I at least spoil the first thing, which is like a, a revelation in like the first 10 seconds of the game? Sure. That yeah, that, that seems fair. Yeah, that's right. Space station. <laughs> I think that's we have to talk about that at least. Yeah, I mean, you spend a lot of time in Prey on a space station that's sort of overrun with a strange, hostile alien species. And you're basically trying to figure out what you need to do to save the remaining people on the ship, whether you need to evacuate, destroy the station, whatever. You basically have to figure out like what you're supposed to do about the fact that this huge, massive, six times the size of the Titanic space station is overrun with these aliens who are significantly more powerful than you at all times. Yeah, so the thing that I wanted to ask you about, there are two things really, and I've, I've gotten the impression from reading reviews and impressions of Prey is that this is just a totally different experience depending on how you're playing it. And a lot of people were barreling through it to get reviews out. And it seems like it's a a different game if you're rushing through it to try to finish or if you're just following the objectives and not exploring. It seems like people are not finding it as satisfying as if maybe they even turn off the objectives and just sort of wander around and not worry so much about beating it. Yeah, I I actually didn't really, I maybe like spent many hours playing it, but I didn't really barrel through it. And in fact, I didn't follow the objective markers. I sort of let myself get lost and I basically followed principles of navigation. Uh Like one helpful principle of navigation in Prey is to always sort of just be on the lookout for security stations. Just because the the game makes it really difficult for you to find weapons and retain ammunition. Mm -hmm. And so... I had more fun just sort of intuitively doing things like that and trying to come across equipment that I knew would be helpful or come across certain skill sets that I knew would be helpful rather than trying to do the whole, like, this is the chapter of the game. I need to get to the end point of this chapter. I, I definitely think that if you play the game that way, it probably isn't the greatest experience because the whole point, right, is like the space station that you're on, which is called Talos One. The game really Talos feels one. like it's <laughs> <laughs> the game really. <laughs> Thank you so much, David. Uh, it, it, it feels like the game really feels like it's about the space station. To me, the strongest character in the game is the space station itself. 
Mm-hmm. And the space station is populated by both these sort of surviving crew members, but also the surviving memories of crew members who are either, you know, passed away or possessed by the, the invading alien species. And you spend a lot of time in the game just sort of trying to figure out who is who on the ship and who has the right piece of equipment to help you get from room A to room B. And a lot of the game is trying to put together the pieces of, of basically of what life on the space station was like and people who had like crushes on each other that you find out about and going through their old emails and stuff like that. And that's what I find super fun about the game. But it's just, you, you're going to miss all of that if you try to play it with it in towards like, oh, I need to, I need to beat this one like monster that I came across and get to the next monster. One of the things I really enjoyed about the, uh, the first couple iterations of the Prey series, which came out a while back and are kind of like an unconnected game, was the art design was just really like this Cronenbergian, almost body horror, interdimensional thing. It was more interesting and a lot of times than the actual gameplay. Uh, talk to me about the, the art design in, in this Prey. Yeah, I mean, most of the art that stands out to me in the game is actually, just, I mean, I'm going to keep talking about the space station because I think it's beautiful. But it's weird. There's very strange, like, the background of the space station, right, is that it was, I guess I should say, the game takes place in a weird alternate timeline where JFK wasn't assassinated. And so the space station... Spoiler! <laughs> <laughs> The the space station, right, is sort of this, it's an old space station that's sort of grown over time, and it's a joint development between the Soviet Union and the United States. And so one thing that there's like a lot of attention to detail to in the game is the sort of conflicting architectural styles on different portions of, of the space station, and that look very realistically like different architectural designs of the 60s and 70s. But that's that's mostly the art that stands out to me. Um, what what do you what do you mean when you are talking about the older series, Jason? Just so well, I know. because well, in the original one, there would be like these. You'd go through these interdimensional portals that were like almost like these glowing anuses. Like just the, it was like unsettling <laughs> in this. It was unsettling in a weird way. And the weapons were like organic in a strange way. And so I was wondering if any of that carried over to this game. Yeah, I don't know. I, I wouldn't say in so much as this game feels unsettling i think it's unsettling the horror elements seem less about strange visual designs like what you seem to be describing and more about silence and i would say jump scares which i know by the way in the last podcast episode we recorded i said this wasn't a very jump scary game so <laughs> on it i retract that i retract oh. that characterization i'm out I'm i apologize out. Yeah, ben Lindbergh will no longer be played i had only played the first 30 minutes and then i played the other game like oh wow this is a huge mistake <laughs> So my last question about Prey, I don't know if this is a spoiler, not getting into specifics here, just a generality. You didn't like the ending and really the whole end game. And I know that you're not alone in that sentiment. So I'm curious about your thoughts about how a subpar ending to a game affects your perception of the whole experience. And maybe this is just a, a question about how central story is to gaming that kind of conversation maybe the more story becomes a a core part of the experience the more that dictates how you feel about the game but justin you you liked prey you enjoyed the the majority of prey so did that color your whole experience of it in retrospect or can you sort of separate the things that you liked about it from the way that it ended 
I can separate the things, but one thing I do want to stress, because you asked about it earlier, I don't even think that the ending, which I do think is dissatisfying, and I think a lot of people think it's dissatisfying, I think it's dissatisfying whether you barrel through the game or whether you're patient with it. And in fact, I Mm. think the more patient you are with the game, the less satisfying the ending is because the speaking broad terms, the ending of the game sort of like introduces elements that aren't really served very much by the attention to detail about the crew and about the ship in, in the sort of like email exchanges and clues and hints all over the ship that you're sort of pouring through during the gameplay for the first 80% 80% of the game. I guess another a simpler way to say it is just that, like, the elements that comprise the end of the game feel very random. They just sort of come out of nowhere. Um, and I think that's the, the problem. But I'm not, I'm not, I would say, like, I don't think it spoils the experience of the game. The fact, I mean, I don't think the ending, which I don't, like, <laughs> I don't think it spoils the experience of the game. It's still a game that I want to replay even more patiently and a bit slower than I did play it the first time through. But I just would be doing that knowing that the ending, <laughs> it just feels like it's a part of the game that's free-floating away from the, the rest of the experience of playing it. Mm-hmm. I'd like to, uh, you told me something troubling earlier today, which is that you've been playing Bastion a lot on Overwatch. <laughs> and, um... Why is it troubling? You didn't explain why you thought that was troubling. It's because you don't have an internet connection, Jason. It's just it's, all going to hell. It's just, I just, I don't know. I find it, uh, you know, I just find that particularly troubling. I, I personally consider Bastion to be trash, but that's, you know, that's just me. And I guess, you know, situationally, I don't know what the situations you're using it for. That's fine. It just, I no, was no, troubled no, no, by it. I, I was troubled by it. Well, how is Bastion trash? Bastion pushes that, out, like, huge amounts of damage if you put him in sentry mode. He absolutely puts out huge amounts of damage, but it's like, you know, it's just it's just one of those cheap things that happens sometimes in the game where, you know, you come around a corner and you need to push that last 10 meters, 20 meters in a minute and a half. And then all of a sudden the guy's sitting there, Bastion, with a pocket mercy boosting the, his damage behind a shield. And it's like, <laughs> wow, we're going to do this now? This is what we're going to do? <laughs> Listen, man. You know what I mean? Just get, get weak tracer and just teleport around it, I guess. I mean, what do you want me to tell you? Three <laughs> <laughs> hit points tracer uh, I, with her weak, her weak pellet gun to take them out. <laughs> I love Overwatch. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right, we will let you go. You can beat a few more games by the time Jason gets his internet back and can play Overwatch with you. What's next on your queue? Uh, I need to play Bioshock. Ah, yeah, okay. I need to go <laughs> yeah, back. Yeah, you do have now. to do that. Yeah. yeah, all right. Cool, always good to Thanks, talk to Justin. you. Thank you, Justin. Thanks, guys. Bye. Number one. <laughs> Hello, Swan. <laughs> all right, see ya. All right, bye, guys. And we'll be right back with Sarah Needleman after a quick word from our sponsor. Dollar Shave Club is the smarter choice. Get a great shave at a great price, conveniently delivered right to your door. It's an awesome life hack and a no-brainer choice. You no longer have to schlep to the store to buy a cheap disposable razor that gives you a cheap shave or spend a fortune on razors with gimmicky shaving tech you don't need. I have terrible shaving technique. I've tried everything. I've tried electric. It's always unsatisfying. But when you use a Dollar Shave Club executive razor with their Dr. Carver Shave Butter, the blade just gently glides, giving you such a smooth shave. Their Dr. Carver Shave Butter is transparent for a more precise shave 
shave. It helps prevent ingrown hairs and fights razor bumps. As someone with sensitive skin, I'll take all the help I can get in that department. And you too can make the smarter choice by joining Dollar Shave Club. For a limited time, new members get their first month of the executive razor with a tube of their Dr. Carver shave butter for only $5 with free shipping. And after that, razors are just a few bucks a month. That's a $15 value for only 5 bucks. And in your first month's box, you get a lot of loot. A weighty handle, a full cassette of four cartridges, and a tube of their shave butter. After your first month, replacement cartridges ship automatically at the regular price. There are no hidden fees and no commitments. You can cancel anytime you like. Not that you'll want to. And you can only get this offer exclusively at dollarshaveclub.com slash achievement. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash achievement. So we are joined now by Sarah Needleman. She's a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. She covers the video game industry. And I'm curious about your job because most of the guests that we have on the show are people who write about games on gaming sites. And that's sort of an oversimplification, but you're kind of coming from a a different world. Not that you don't do those things, but (laughs) you're in a world of earnings calls and shareholder statements and financial analysts. And you're kind of covering the industry as a business. And you're also writing for the Wall Street Journal, which, of course, has a lot of non-gamers or people who might have to get some background about the things that you're talking about. So can you give us a sense of how you ended up doing this and covering this industry and how you have to adapt to covering it in that way? Sure. Well, um, I've been with the Wall Street Journal for 15 years. And before covering video games, I wrote about small business and um, corporate management. And so the journal, our audience is a little bit different than the kind of readers who might pick up gaming publications such as Kotaku or Polygon. Mm -hmm. And the readers do tend to be, in many cases, investors in all sorts of companies, including the publicly traded game companies like Activision Blizzard, Take-Two Software, Interactive Software, and uh, Electronic Arts. And my focus is certainly on keeping them abreast of what's happening with those companies and trends that are happening in the industry. But also, I do a lot of reporting on uh, video game culture. That's certainly Mm -hmm. a big part of people's lives with the average gamer now being in their mid-30s, something that a lot of people can relate to, especially with mobile video games coming to smartphones and iPads. And uh, you might be a bit surprised by the the people who who play games. Uh, Recently, I I spoke to uh, my mom's friend. She's in her late 60s, and she's addicted to a whole bunch of uh, mobile games. um, (laughs) (laughs) And she she also really likes Nintendo. She was asking me about Legend of Zelda and whether or not she should get the Switch. Um, This is a 67-year-old woman. So you'd be surprised how many different walks of life have uh, an interest in video games and what's happening in this industry, which has been Mm -hmm. growing by leaps and bounds in recent years. It's quite interesting. Yeah, that is exactly how old my mom is. And she has not asked me if she should get a switch. (laughs) 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 And when you switched to covering games full time a few years ago, was it because you had a personal history with it that drew your attention to the topic? (laughs) Or or did you just think it was an interesting industry? The, The answer is as exciting as you might think. Um, mm-hmm. I had just been covering my previous beat for a long time. I was looking for change. I was on maternity leave. I just had my first daughter and mm-hmm. uh, the opening for the video game beat came up 
And I, I do enjoy games. I'm not a hardcore gamer, but I do play a, a decent amount. And I am married to a hardcore gamer. And uh, my younger brother is a hardcore gamer. And I've just been, you know, every Hanukkah, every birthday, um, I've always been <laughs> buying these games and uh, kind of sitting there, you know, alongside watching them and playing myself here and there. So um, certainly when the, the opportunity came up, I applied for the position. I thought it was interesting. I, I wanted to change. And uh, I'm glad I did because I, I really enjoy covering this beat a lot. It's, it's been a yeah. lot of fun. And uh, I've learned a lot. I've met a lot of interesting people. And uh, it's nice. Yeah. So how do you do the research or the, the catch-up required, I guess, to be the, the full-time reporter on an industry for The Wall Street Journal when you've been doing something else totally different in the past? You know, just like any time you make a change in your career, you spend some time, you know, reading up on the companies you cover. So um, luckily I was on maternity leave and I had a lot of free time while the baby was sleeping to sit and read earnings transcripts and go through some of the <laughs> old, uh, filings uh, in my time off and uh, just started, you know, getting to know the, the blogs and the industry publications, uh, reading Gamma Sutra all the time and games industry and uh, Polygon, et cetera, and um, just paying attention to social media, to Reddit, uh, mm -hmm. talking to people in the know, talking to analysts, asking them, what are the hot trends you're seeing? And over time, it just sort of gels, just like any other job that you start spending all your time living and breathing. Um, right. It just becomes natural at, at some point. Mm -hmm. And do you think that it has some unique challenges or is it more transparent than certain industries? I know there's a lot of secrecy and sometimes it seems like it's unnecessary secrecy on the, the part of developers and, and companies, but I'm sure that's not unique at all? No, it's, it's not. I think a lot of other industries are the same way. You know, I before this, I did cover small business and corporate management and uh, recruiting, and those weren't um, specific to an industry. They were broader, so I, I don't really have the, a way to compare apples to apples. Mm -hmm. um, but just from, you know, being a part of the Wall Street Journal, you can see, read the paper every day, pretty much cover to cover, and you learn a lot about what's going on in other industries, and there's certainly uh, some similarities between games and other lines of business. I'm interested in terms of how they operate, what what they share and what they don't share. You recently wrote about Facebook and their pivot towards showing more esports with uh, a deal they recently signed with ESL, who organizes various esports tournaments. See, it almost feels like Facebook is late to this, but could you kind of talk about what their what their strategy is? Sure. Um, well, Facebook is really looking to just develop more polished programming. And esports is one of several areas that they're looking at. But esports certainly is attractive to Facebook because they can see that it already has millions of fans on sites like Amazon's Twitch and Alphabet's YouTube. And so they're relatively new to the live video world. And they've also been dealing with some growing pains along the way so far. For some of the publishers that they struck deals with last year, the return of the investment has not been so great. Uh, those companies haven't seen a lot of viewers and haven't generated a lot of ad revenue. And we also know that Facebook has been grappling with how to censor violent moments um, and other dark content that's been streamed to the site by um, everyday users. So the shift here is really toward esports is just one of several moves it's making to attract different kinds of content, more professional content, and more loyal viewers. And as we know, esports fans are, are very loyal to their favorite streamers. And I know there's been some debate about just how big the potential with esports is. It seems like it's been kind of the 
next big thing for a while and it does keep getting bigger and bigger but there's also been some difficulty monetizing it and there's been a, a lot of outside investment but it seems like everyone's kind of rushing to get some stake in esports because it's such a, a growing market without necessarily knowing the best way to profit from it so can you give us kind of a, a broad take on that entire industry and, and how you see it developing yeah it's definitely going through a learning curve especially here in North America as opposed to Asia where it's been mm-hmm. uh, around a bit longer and I think what the company's publishers and others are grappling with is how to make it something that's a little bit more mainstream and more spectator friendly right now um, it does seem that a, a lot of the most popular esports games are a bit complex and not easy for someone who doesn't play them to quickly grasp and so as we know with traditional sports they are made in such a way with commentators and uh, a lot of visuals that it's easier for people to follow and so some of the publishers are now looking at ways to make their games a little bit more spectator friendly and also figure out how to work with advertisers um, whether it's you know brands endemic to the esports space or newcomers and how to integrate them in a way that viewers will pay attention since we know a lot of young folks today know how to block ads and uh, they spend most of their time watching video content over stream live over the web as opposed to on network television and it may seem like it's taking a while but sometimes figuring these things out do take time and also it takes a while for uh, non-endemic brands to get accustomed to it and to figure out what kind of audience they want to reach and how to reach that audience and that may take some experimentation and some mistakes along the way till we get to the point where every, everything sort of gels and so we're starting to see it we're seeing take to develop a league with the National um, Basketball Association and we're seeing uh, naturally Activision Blizzard try to put this Overwatch League off, get that off the ground in the fall. And there have been a number of other efforts and, and just like the Facebook thing, more attention brought to esports, the more people get comfortable with it and, and understand it better and the greater chance that we'll have to blossom into something really big. Two-part question. What do you think is the biggest obstacle to esports really breaking through? Obviously, when you look at the numbers, the viewership numbers are, are absolutely staggering, but you know it's it's decentralized. And not everyone watches the event live. Some people might watch it on a different device, a different platform, a different time. And obviously, the games are, are constantly changing. So, what do you yeah, what do you think is the the biggest obstacle to the to the real breakthrough? Is it just is it just more people being steeped in in esports and coming up into into the mainstream? My sense, you know, that, that it's a good question and something that if I knew the answer for sure, I'd probably uh, <laughs> be a very wealthy woman. Uh, but my my sense is a lot of it does have to do with making the game Games, easy to understand for somebody who's not necessarily a player of those games or maybe someone who's not even into you know video games in general but you know I, I watch football I, I certainly don't play football and I can enjoy it and understand what's going on pretty easily and uh, you know video games if, if they could accomplish that in some way may have a better chance of becoming a lucrative sport like traditional sports. Um, It may not get to that point, but there really are some interesting signs of of people spending a large amount of time uh, watching esports and spending money on it. So maybe it's hard to say if it'll ever be um, in the same vein as, you know, the National Football League. But it certainly, I think, has a chance to be very, very lucrative if it's done right. And figuring out how to get that perfect blend of exciting entertainment that's enjoyable, understandable, and affordable is a tough challenge. You're seeing more and more of these traditional 
professional bat and ball sports partner with esports teams. What is their strategy here? Is it trying to reach a new audience that's more tech savvy? Is it, you know, is it, are they genuinely interested in the genre or are they trying to almost co-opt a competitor before they become truly a competitor? Well, you know, it's a good question and it's hard to really understand what their motivations are deep down, if they're genuinely interested in esports or not, but they certainly do see it attracting a lot of young people and that highly coveted millennial demographic. And there are some signs that people are cutting back their viewership of traditional sports and taking up esports instead. There have been some surveys that have indicated that. And so um, if you're a professional sports team or a league, and you're paying attention to what's happening, you may want to get in it for financial reasons or because you actually really like it and you think it has potential. But you certainly wouldn't invest money uh, to go down that road if you didn't think it was going to have some sort of return. Whether or not you actually like to watch esports yourself as a business, if you own a sports team or a league or have some sort of financial stake, you're definitely going to look at esports from that kind of lens and see how it might benefit you. And uh, especially over time, as, as younger generations grow up and they're used to the live streaming and cutting the cord, generally businesses have to adapt to, to stay current. And so that's something that a lot of them are looking at doing. And are there any other industry trends or developments you're tracking and maybe writing about repeatedly that are either fascinating to you personally or particularly momentous for the industry as a whole? I mean, one thing I've, I've written about repeatedly in different ways, shapes, or form is how add-ons are such a, a lucrative part of the industry that, um, you know, it used to be you, you made a video game and you sold it and then you moved on. And now it's games just live on indefinitely. And that's possible through changes in technology uh, that have enabled companies to sell uh, expansion packs. You could download additional content for a price. Uh, certainly the option to buy microtransactions. The concept of the season pass where you can buy all these uh, extra storylines or maps, or et cetera, in advance really keeps people more engaged in games for longer stretches of time. I mean, it's possible we may see the end of the concept of a sequel. If you could just keep adding and adding to games, mm-hmm. um, it, it's hard to say, but these persistent open worlds are really interesting. And, you know, they, they date back decades when you think about it, when you go back to the World of Warcraft era. And then now they've just sort of evolved to this reoccurring revenue machine where the companies are constantly squeezing money out of players in, in small bits over time. It's a really interesting trend. It's somewhat controversial. There's some question whether or not it's hurting sales of new games or uh, some debate over whether developers are carving out content that would have been in the main game to sell off in piecemeal. Regardless of of what the motives are, um, it's certainly a lucrative proposition for game companies and they're generating billions of dollars a year that they weren't generating maybe five or six years ago. And Mm -hmm. to me, that's pretty fascinating and uh, something definitely to watch to see how it evolves over time. Games are interesting because the, the trends can be hard to spot. Sometimes they can be economic driven. They can be driven by UI. They can be driven by a mechanic. What are the trends that you're seeing coming down the pike for the next couple of years? The, the trends are, are probably the ones you, you're familiar with too. Um, certainly esports, as we've been talking about and see how that grows. Digital distribution at some point, I imagine mm-hmm. uh, we won't be buying hard copies of games anymore. Yeah, that seems a matter of time. That will certainly affect the used market. Virtual reality, augmented reality, um, these are all, you know, those are definitely things that matter a lot. And relationships between non-endemic brands getting integrated into video games, not necessarily through esports, but all sorts Ooh. of ways. 
I think we'll see a lot more of that, especially as video games become more accepted in mainstream culture as not mm-hmm. just something for children, but something that adults do too, and that could actually even have some positive benefits. I mean, it's generally debated among psychologists and other experts in the healthcare industry as to the pros and cons of gaming. And if there are more and more examples of it coming out with positive results, that could affect things down the road. We're also seeing video game technology being used in other industries. Like when you look at the self-driving cars, some of the companies that are creating those um, vehicles are pulling from talent from video game companies. So you see a lot of crossover and that could lead to new and interesting things that we haven't even thought of. Yeah, did you see that? Did you see the recent video from the South Korean election? It was like some debate video and it was like basically a screen from like Dance Dance Revolution or something like <laughs> where the, where each candidate is like zoomed in on and then there's like a, these stats that come up and then they dabbed. It was it was right. wild. There's a lot of crossover yeah. between the language now. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And you mentioned the, the driverless stuff. I just talked to someone who's using Grand Theft Auto to train driverless AI because it's yeah. this virtual world. And you see, you see the military uses a lot of VR too and gaming and there's certainly a, was it there's a, a video game that created by the US Army many many years ago that continues uh, to evolve America's over Army, time. America's Army, right? um, and uh, we're seeing more of it now with virtual reality being used for training and recruitment purposes so I think it's just going to keep going in that direction. Where exactly it goes? Don't know. Don't have a uh, time machine but I think it's definitely um, a positive future for the video game industry. All right. Well, you can read Sarah's reporting in the Wall Street Journal. She's probably listening to an earnings call on another line as we speak (laughs) right now. You can find her on Twitter also at Sarah E. Needleman. And we thank you for your time. Thanks, Sarah. Yeah, thank you. My pleasure. All right. Take care, guys. All right. It is time to talk destiny. The vault of glass has always held many mysteries, a place so vast, so open. It was no surprise that it created a community dedicated to exploring it. On November 29, 2014, the community known as Raid Secrets was formed. It was there that people shared their ideas, experiences, and their theories of what lies hidden inside the vault. But the one thing that many wanted to see, the one thing many wanted to explore, whether there was rewards or not, what many wanted was to see behind its walls. I was the first player to see everything behind them, and this is my journey. All right, so Destiny 2 is a topic on a lot of people's minds. Of course, it was announced this week. We're watching videos of what that game will look like. But before we all move on from the first Destiny for good, we want to talk to someone who has maybe seen more of Destiny than anyone else alive who doesn't work for Bungie, at least. His name is DJ. He is an accomplished glitcher and explorer of the world of Destiny. And he produced a video called Destiny Journey to the Throne Room earlier this year that is really impressive. It's a a 15-minute video of his exploits, and it's a marvel of persistence and creativity and exploration and getting to places in games where you're not supposed to go. So hi, DJ. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. So the obvious question, of course, is what inspires you to see things in video games that you are not supposed to see? When did this urge arise in you? Did you used to play video games the normal way? Did you start out Destiny just looting and shooting and come to this desire to see everything else or have you always tested the boundaries <laughs> i've always liked watching like glitch videos and exploration videos like outside the map like on anything on youtube but i personally didn't really get into it until destiny one 
you know, once uh, once I started playing and seeing the, the beautiful environment and everything that were on it, I wanted to see beyond it because I feel like we were pretty limited in what we could see. Mm-hmm. It was just a, it was just amazing to see and everything and the skyboxes and everything. And once uh, once I discovered, like for example, Rape Secret, you know, I started seeing other people exploring, exploring, and eventually that just got me full into the community and. <laughs> what what makes Vault of Glass so fascinating? There've been several endgame um, releases, endgame raids for Destiny, Crota, Oryx from the Taken King. But why does Vault of Glass really seem to hold a special place in so many people's imaginations? Uh, I think because it was always teased on Patrol. It was always something you can get into, but only so far. And then people were able to get a little bit further and a little bit until it was closed nobody was able to get past a certain point and it always became like a, a holy grail to to all the glitchers to to finally make it past where everyone was stuck at which was the templars well yeah and, and we've seen this sort of thing in a lot of games you know maybe it's something like in GoldenEye. there's that island you can see from afar and so everyone wonders if there's something in there or there's similar things in Halo 3, for instance. There are attempts to reach things that you're not supposed to be able to reach. Or in Grand Theft Auto San Andreas, people are still looking for Bigfoot. So I don't know what it is exactly about these certain environments. I guess it's just that there's something that you can see or it seems like there's more than meets the eye, but there's no obvious way to get there. And it, you just kind of take it as a challenge to, to see if you can get there anyway. Yeah, and I think what really everyone as well not just not being able to get there but because nobody knew if there was more secrets hidden in the vault because even like uh when the first when the raid came out there was still things being discovered but nobody knew if there was anything hidden that they haven't found yet and there was always there was so many uh posts like on reddit saying oh i found this chest i found this room but nobody was able to really verify it not until i was able to get to the gorgon's bank that we were able to see if any of the rooms existed that we haven't seen or nothing like that. Can you describe some of the some of the techniques you use to get to really explore the um, the vault? Like there's there's one portion where you take the sparrow, which is the the vehicle that guardians can ride and can can buy through various vendors, and you almost like free fall tumble with it and land after almost like a minute of free fall, like at, at a specific place. Like how did how did you figure out all this stuff and how how did the community figure out all this stuff and how long did it take? Can you describe some of the evolution of like the techniques you used? <laughs> that's actually that's actually a pretty hilarious way that I found it because I found it by accident. I was exploring the vault and I was trying to climb as high as I could and I fell off. I fell off the map and I noticed that I kept going past where the death bear would usually be and I hit the bottom. I was like, wait, you know, something something happened here. So I recorded it and I watched the video and this was uh, December of uh, last year, December 16th, is when I discovered that certain death barriers can be bypassed if you're going fast enough. So that little tumble that I had showed me that you can actually get past them. So my my next issue was like, all right, now that I can get under the map, because I, I was able to fall through it now, even while outside, I was like, how do I get back up? And I was like, you know what? I could do. I could use a, a sparrow because uh, I saw a YouTube user uh, named Jiggity Jack. He was sparrow flying outside. Uh, he would go from like the bottom of the 
of the vaulted glass and he would fly back up. And I was like, I need to learn that because that's my ticket up there. <laughs> so <laughs> then once I got the sparrow, I kept dying and dying and dying. I couldn't get past the death barrier because you couldn't go fast enough. And I was like, you know what? There must be a way to get the sparrow past it because I, I was still... I was still not 100% sure of how the mechanics were. I was like, I think speed is it, or this death bear just explodes my sparrow. So I dropped my sparrow, and it went through the death bear, no problem, didn't explode. So I was like, okay, so it's a speed issue. And after, like, uh, trying it out, I, originally I had uh, the sparrow land on top of me, and the sparrow would force me through the death bear, but I realized that I didn't even need to do that. Just the speed that uh, that I got just from dismounting it was enough to get past it, and then once I get past the death bear, I would just grab it again and continue on. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, you you have distilled all of this exploration and experimentation down to a well-produced 15-minute video. But as you say in the video, this is the product of two years of work on your part. And I can't imagine how many hours because you're tracing these specific paths in the video and you know that if you go a little too far this way or that way, you're going to die. It's going to be the end of the attempt. And you have just through, I can't imagine how many attempts figured out the perfect way to do this. And it seems like inevitable now that you could do it. But as you were working on this, you must not have known that any of this was possible. Like there are moments in the video where you're just flying into nothingness for a minute or so. You just can't see anything on the screen. It's not apparent that there's anything at the other end of where you're going. And so this was just sort of a, a leap of faith on your part, I guess, at the time. Oh, there was, there was so many points in that video where I just, all right, I reached the end of the line. There's no way I can advance to this. And they're like, oh, wait, I think I can make it. And then I just keep trying and trying until I made it. But I have to say that that part where you're saying that uh, you can't really see anything, mm-hmm. that was definitely the most stressful and difficult part of the the thing but <laughs> by that point i had enough experience on sparrow flying that i could you know like uh you know make it work but uh if you notice like in my first the first time you see me sparrow flying to the top of the templar as well it's a really clean straight up kind of fly but once i get to the, the darkness part i'm like sloppy i go too far to the sides and everything and the only way that uh that I was able to get through that is because uh, you can't really notice until the video sped up, but I'm actually just going in circles in one area because I can't get close to any environments because I'll hit the barriers that they have. Yeah. So I just kept going in circles and circles until I was far enough up that I could see everything. And it seems like the game is fighting you every step of the way. Like it doesn't want to be explored in this way. <laughs> it's like you're flying through heavy turbulence, like you're just careening around the screen and it just seems like some force is actively trying to stop you, although I guess that is not actually the case, but you're kind of breaking and bending the rules of physics in this world that's not designed to work that way, and you're just finding ways around it. Oh, oh man, there's so many, so many things. The video, I don't want to say it makes it look easy, but it looks easier than what it is because yeah, I would, I would be flying, and all of a sudden I just die. Like, wait, 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 what happened there? You know, like, and I just get dragged into a rock, and then. You know, I exploded with my sperm. Like, what happened there? You know, so <laughs> I knew I actually had to to back up and remove a lot of data from my my PlayStation because I had 500 gigabytes of footage and hundreds and hundreds of failures that I did. <laughs> <laughs> As you got into glitching and exploring Destiny, were you still actually playing the game, or, or did you just totally stop playing it the normal way? Well, I, I would play once in a while. I would take breaks from that because it was just it, it was so time consuming. Because every attempt to do a uh, journey to the, the throne room, 
would take me like an hour, 40 to, to an hour. So if I fail, that's 40 minutes, an hour wasted. And then I have to do it again and do it again. Mm-hmm. And like when, when I first started it, you know, I, I kind of just brute forced everything. Like I learned how to sparify within a week. So I was real sloppy, but I was, you know, I was doing progress. It would take me 40 minutes just to reach the top of the template as well, which is like where part two starts or mm-hmm. before it starts. And it used to take me that much. And now I can do it like seven, 10 minutes, no problem. But oh, <laughs> some days I'd be like, I'd tell my rate boys like, nah, I can't rate today. I'm going to do three or four attempts before I go to the... <laughs> And uh, were you satisfied with what you found when you got where you were trying to go? I mean, I guess by that point, it was more about the accomplishment of getting there than what you would actually find there. Oh, it was, I'd say it was unbelievable. It was, it was an amazing experience. Once I, once I finally made it, once I finally found that you can actually enter the room, I was, I was like, it's like a, a weight off my, my shoulders. <laughs> Yeah, I was finally able to see all that. And it was like, just seeing the environments, like from the outside, seeing all the, the three stone rooms that were there, that you can see them, you know, together. Like if you fly, you can fly to them. Just get your spare and then fly to one and fly to the other. And it was, it was, it was just amazing to see that nobody in like rate takers in the community knew what it looked like on the outside or, or knew exactly what was going on. It wasn't like until I, I made it that, that we were able to see, you know, how exactly these things are structured and everything. Mm-hmm. How do you even st- start doing this is it just is it just curiosity is it just you watch other glitch videos and you're like oh i wonder if i can get up on that rock and if i could do that or is it just like how do you even that's always the thing that's interested me about speed running and about glitching is like how do you even begin to form the thought that oh i wonder if i can just bypass this entire portion of the map well when when i saw that you can glitch in terrors i was like oh that's cool that's neat i like that i can see this i can see that and once I saw people uh, on the community saying that they've been trying to get to, to the throne room and everything, I, I thought to myself, like, huh, it'd be pretty cool if I made it. So from I went casually, I would make a couple attempts here and there. For like the first two years, I'd be attempting this. I'd be exploring that. And I'd be discussing with others. And once I found out that you could bypass the death barrier with the fall, with the speed, I was like, you know what? I, I put my mind to it. I was like, I'm going to seriously do this. And I'm going to do this this whole glitch all the way to the throne room. Have you been inspired in the same way by other games? I know you recently made a Breath of the Wild video too. Yeah, uh, I actually glitched a bit in, uh, in Breath of the Wild and I think. And every time I play a game, I'm like, huh, you know, I bet you I can, I can glitch there. Or I bet you I can do that. And I never really had this curiosity to do it myself until Destiny happened. And once... Uh, the community and everything and like i think and i, I say that uh the community is a strong factor in this because it's a really nice feeling it's a really fulfilling emotion to get when uh when you have others that that like what you do that support you and are willing to be there for you and those and that kind of thing and it's a community that makes it strong i guess so talk about destiny 2 the gameplay footage just dropped is there anything in particular you're excited about any of the uh the tweaks that they've they've talked about to the game there's uh different ways to join up with with other players raids different pvp stuff um anything pique your interest there oh it looks beautiful i was mostly looking to see how, how they did the world how they did the planets how they did patrol how everything was going to change and it seems a lot of things are going to change there's going to be so many things to see and I, I really look forward to, to putting uh, my mind to it and see what uh, what else I can find hidden in the world. It's definitely something I have to, to see. I can't wait to uh, to see what they have to offer to explore it. 
and then see what they don't have to offer. <laughs> yeah, it'll be interesting to see if the same glitches transfer to the new game or, or whether they will have learned from your videos and prevented <laughs> players from doing those things again. Yeah. Uh, I just hope they don't take away Sparrow flying. That's, uh, even, even without glitching, that's not the real thing to do. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we encourage everyone to go check out DJ's video, Destiny Journey to the Throne Room. You can, it's an amazing video. Yeah, it really is. You can find his other videos, obviously, at that channel. You can also find him on Twitter at DJXYZ0. And we appreciate your time. Thanks, DJ. I appreciate it for having me here. Thank you. Thank you. Did you have any initial impressions of Destiny 2, Jason, that we didn't just talk about? To me, it, it uh... looks like the Taken King, but just yeah, sure. more of that which is it's fine that's good i have a i have a crew that i run with that is uh -huh. just destiny freaks yeah. um and so just to kind of commiserate with them i could the satisfaction of raiding with them i could feel like i could feel it pulling me back in although i still i i feel like the good people at bungie need to apologize for the exotic sword quest that i went through <laughs> and certain other things but i i i mean it looks like destiny 1.5 like it's mm -hmm. not it doesn't seem like a true update to me but i'm in i'm, I'm i'll do it again yeah, I'm grudgingly in. <laughs> I anticipate yeah. spending a lot of hours playing it and not really feeling that great about myself when it's over, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I'm in. All right, so we've got a couple good guests lined up for next week, so looking forward to that. Reminder to join our Facebook discussion group, facebook.com slash achievement oriented. You can find us on Twitter and send us questions there at Achievement Pod, and we will talk to you all soon. See you, Jason. Peace. For a great shave at a great price, join Dollar Shave Club. New members get their first month of the Executive Razor and a tube of Dr. Carver's Shave Butter for only $5 with free shipping. After that, razors are just a few bucks a month. That's a $15 value for only 5 bucks. Get yours at dollarshaveclub.com slash achievement.